Um, let's go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. So we take our next step into the Beatitudes of Jesus, um, these blessings of this upside-down kingdom uh, that Jesus has come to bring and the character traits of those people who are a part of his kingdom. And that's, that's exactly what the Beatitudes are. And so far, we've understood what Jesus means by a couple of really important words that he uses. We understand what he means by blessed or blessed as we read the Beatitudes. That that is a word that describes happiness. But not the kind of happiness that the world pursues or the kind of happiness that the world chases after. It's a, it's a blissful, satisfied, fully uh, content happiness that is centered in a relationship with God. So that's what Jesus means when he says, blessed are these. But then, with each beatitude, he shows us a picture of what that path to this kind of happiness looks like. And, and how it is to live in this kind of happiness. And so last week, he started out by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. And so we know that, and I'll remind you, and we'll put it up from last week. We said that the poor in spirit approach God with empty hands in prideless humility. It's all about humility. To come to God having nothing to offer. No credentials. No resume. Um, no, um, not even um, this self-deprecation that, that thinks that I have to produce something for God to accept me. Like... It, it's, it's a fully coming and falling at the grace and the mercy of God. We're fully aware of our unworthiness before God. And Jesus presents this as the first of the Beatitudes for a reason. Because the kingdom of heaven can't be ours until we come with complete dependence and complete surrender. Amen? We talked about that, how... We, we can't come to Jesus with a bag full of stuff and a bag full of what we have to offer. We have nothing. And people who try to come into the kingdom, who try to come to God, but have a haughty spirit, a, a proud spirit, thinking that there's a way that they can earn or receive salvation based on some kind of merit, Jesus says, those people, the kingdom of heaven is not for them. It's not, they're, they're not able to come into it. And so this was a really important one. So you remember I told you last week that Jesus, that the Beatitudes, we have to study them as a, as a collective character. Um, they're not individual uh, qualities that we get to sort of pick and choose from and say, oh, well, I'm good with this one, but I'm not good with this one. This is, this is a full picture of the kingdom of God. And so... Um, today we're going to move from that first one to that second one. So if we'll go back to chapter 5, I want us to begin uh, in verse 1 again and read through until we get to the one we're going to talk about today, which is verse 4. So Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit... For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, 
for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So you remember I told you that the Beatitudes have sort of a progressive order to them. So as we come to understand one, it gives us a better picture through which we can interpret the ones that come after that. It's important that we don't read them and isolate them or separate them and and think that they mean completely different things that aren't associated with each other. They very much are tied together. And so if we're going to try to figure out what does Jesus mean by those who mourn, we've got to understand what he said before when he means those who are poor in spirit. And And we've talked about that. So what kind of mourning is Jesus referring to here? And, and the bigger question for us, maybe, and for the people who were listening to Jesus, was what kind of mourning brings happiness? What kind of mourning? Because what Jesus literally says, you remember I said it's, everything is upside down to the people who are listening, to the world who's hearing what he says. And if, if verse 3 seemed to contradict itself... Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If that one seemed weird to the crowd, this one sure did. Because literally what Jesus says and what they hear is happy are the sad. Happy are the sad. That doesn't make any sense, Jesus. (laughs) That's contradictory. What are you talking about? Happy are the sad. So to understand what we have to know what Jesus is referring to when he talks about this kind of grief and mourning. And he's talking about a very specific kind of grief. There's lots of different ways that we mourn and we grieve. Most commonly when we think about, when we see the word mourning, we think of mourning the death of someone that we love. We think about the kind of grief that we experience that's caused by loss. It could, it could be the death of a loved one. It could be the loss of, of a job. It could be the loss of a relationship. It could be the loss of uh, some sort of opportunity. Or, or um, we, we, we sort of are in this grief. The older we get, we begin to, to lose things that we used to have. And there's a, and there's a grief that we experience and not being able to do or enjoy or or be a part of the things that we used to have. And, and there's a grief that comes from loss. And that is, that's appropriate. It's a, that, that's an appropriate type of grief. And we should grieve at, the, at, at our losses, especially the loss of people that we love. And God does, in his word, promise to provide comfort for people who grieve in that sort of way. But sometimes... I don't know that we consider that we, in our sinfulness, can mourn inappropriately. Have you ever caught yourself mourning over the loss of something because of your own selfishness? Mourning over the loss of something because you just didn't get things the way you wanted. And you can experience that emotion of, of, of grief But when you look deep in your heart, that's not an appropriate type of grief because the reason that you're grieving is self-centered. 
It's because something didn't happen the way you wanted to. You didn't get that job that you wanted. You didn't get, um, you know, that, that I, I can remember going through those stages of grief in middle school and high school when I had a crush on a girl and I kind of put myself out there for them and then found out, no, they just want to be friends. <laughs> you talk about grief. Like, like that, that, that selfish like, I, I want this and I can't have it. And we allow ourselves to, to go into a grief and a mourning. So there, there's an appropriate type of, of mourning when it comes to that. And then there's also, I think we have to understand and remember that, that there's an inappropriate type of grief. We can grieve to the point where it becomes sinful. And we can grieve over things in a sinful way. So that's obviously not what Jesus is talking about. These types of grief are common to all people. It doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or not. All people know how to grieve over the loss of, of, of a loved one, over the loss of, of things or circumstance or people. And all of us in our sinfulness can mourn and grieve over things inappropriately. That's common to all people. But Jesus isn't talking about all people in this verse. He's talking about people who are a part of his kingdom. He's not talking about the whole world. So there's a specific people that he's talking about and a specific kind of mourning that can only be experienced by those who desire to be in Jesus, those who are in him. So here's a, here's a definition that you can write in your notes for you note takers. This mourning is a godly grief caused by our own sin and the sin in the world around us when Jesus says blessed are those who mourn he's not talking about the loss of death he's not talking about the sadness that we feel he's very specifically talking about a grief that we experience and a mourning that we experience because of our own sinfulness and not only the sin that's in us but when we look at the world and we see the presence and the, and the reign and the rule of sin all around us, it moves us to grief. It moves us to mourning. I want to ask you a question to seriously consider. When is the last time you grieved the sin in your life? When's the last time that I considered what separated me from God? What salvation in the cross has, has removed and reunited me to God, but yet still in my flesh, the presence of, of my sinful nature and the things that I do that, that hurt the heart of God and the things that I do that hurt the people that I love. How, when's the last time you thought about the sin in your life and you just mourned it? And you grieved over the fact that you were a sinner? We usually have one of three responses to the sin in our life. When we think about our own sinfulness, we sometimes justify it, right? 
We justify our sin because that, that's fed by pride, which goes absolutely opposite against the last beatitude. Jesus says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. So we sometimes justify our sin and, 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 and explain to ourselves why it's okay. Sometimes we just ignore it because we're indifferent to it. But then the correct response is confession. The correct response to our sin is, is, is mourning and confession and then repentance. So I said that this one is tied to the one before. To understand mourning in verse 3, we have to go back to verse... I mean, in verse 4, we have to go back to verse 3. We said those who come to God poor in spirit are bankrupt before God. And the awareness of sin in their life, because they realize they have nothing to give to God, they come poor in spirit, they're aware of their sin, and the awareness of that sin brings a godly sorrow. I hope that when we come to God in awareness of our sin, we feel some kind of sorrow and grief for it. I mean, you know what it's like to have somebody give a fake apology to you, right? Somebody who's hurt you or done something and, and they come and they, they tell you they're sorry, but you know good and well there's really no heart behind it. They're just saying the words, going through the motions to try to get you to, get you to move on and move past it. The awareness of sin in, 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 in the heart of the poor in spirit will produce a godly sorrow. And that godly sorrow over sin will lead to repentance. So I want us to think about this morning. Well, what does that look like in my life? What should that look like in my life? How do I know if I'm mourning my sin the way Jesus is talking about here? What does that look like? Well, I want to, I think there's two things that will be present in us or in those who mourn. When Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, there's a couple of just really simple characteristics that I think will be present. And maybe these, these two things will help us kind of examine our own hearts this morning. The first thing is there will be a sensitivity to the sin in us. Sensitivity to the sin in us. Um, Psalm 51. We read some from Psalm 51 last week when we were talking about the poor in spirit. But there's characteristic of this mourning also in Psalm 51 as David is writing. Um, look at verses 3 and 4 in Psalm 51. It says, For I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. We read that last week. But here we see... David is conscious of his sin. He sees it. He's aware of it. He's sensitive to it. Verse 4, against you, you alone I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. This is, this is how David comes to God in confession of his sin. He's fully aware of it and he's grieving it and he and he. He's sensitive to his own sin. 
If I'm sensitive to the sin that's in me, I don't blame God for my sin. Aren't we sometimes prone to do that? We will either blame God for the sin in our life or we will blame other people for the sin in our life. I remember those moments with my boys growing up and they would... They would come home from school. I think I talk about this a lot because it applies to so many different things. Kids come home from school. You got in trouble at school. Well, tell me what you did. And the first thing out of their mouth is, well, so-and-so was doing this and -and so-and-so was doing that. And I used to just really, I would just interrupt them and be like, ah, that's not what I asked. I don't care what Johnny was doing. I don't care what Billy was doing. I don't care what Seth was doing. I want to know what were you doing. Well, he was the da 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 da. Wrong. What were you doing? Because they have to own that. They have to be sensitive to the fact that that my sin comes from me. It comes from my own heart. And until my heart is broken over my own sin. I can't truly have grief for the sin in anybody else's life. (laughs) And this is something that I think a lot of people, I think we speak too quickly when we start talking about sin in general. It's way too easy for us to talk about the sin we see in other people, it's way too easy. I'm afraid that we miss this beatitude when we can so easily point out and talk about the sin in somebody else's life in a casual, flippant way without the awareness of the depth and the darkness of the sin that's in us and the sensitivity to that. I think this beatitude is, is sort of what was behind what Jesus would say later in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. If you, if you flip over or you just want to follow on the screen, if you flip over to chapter 7, look at what he says in verse 3 through 5. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye. Hypocrite. First take the beam of wood out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. Without a sensitivity to the sin in my life, I can't help you deal with the sin in yours. And when we try to address and help deal with the sin that we see in the world and the sin that we see in other people's life without having dealt with ours appropriately through a a window and an eye of mourning and grief, grieving over the presence of our sin, coming in humble repentance, poor in spirit before God, until we deal with our own sin in this way, we can't really help other people with their struggle with sin. All we can do is point fingers and condemn them. It's funny how sin works in our life. I don't know how many of us could say that, that 
We know what it's like to have at one time pointed fingers in judgment and condemnation toward people for a particular type of sin that's in their life. And then later on we found that sin creeping very intimately into our life. And that changes your perspective, doesn't it? You don't point fingers as quickly. You don't talk about that sin in the same way because it, it's not just somebody else's. It's, it's yours. I think this is what Jesus means. A sensitivity. There will be a sensitivity to the sin that's in us. But the second thing is that there will be a sorrow for the sin around us. So primarily first, when Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, he's talking about our sinfulness, and it starts with us. It has to start with us. It can't start with the outside. It has to begin in our heart. But once we begin to truly grieve and mourn the death of sin in our life, in humility before God, then our eyes are open, the the plank comes out of our eye, and then we're able to see the sin in the people around us, and we, and we deal with it with that same grief and sorrow. Not with arrogance. Not with pride. Not with haughtiness. I just, even, I'm, I'm convicted even in my own life of, of moments and times when I've looked at sin in other people's lives, thinking that I'm immune to that, and that can't happen to me, and that won't happen to me. And, and to, to talk about that in such a way that, that, wow, I can't believe this has happened to them. And we look at the world and we say, how, how far from God they are. But we don't say it with grief, we say it with pride. We say it with, with arrogance. And I think we should, God's calling us to repent of that kind of spirit. When we look at the sin in the world, folks, whether we like it or not, in many ways, that's what the church has become known for. It's not an attitude toward the sin of the world that that is full of grief and sorrow because we know the answer to that sin and we so desperately want them to see and know the answer to that. And so we grieve over it but we, 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 we stand over it in pride. And the rest of the world sees our attitude toward their sin and says, I don't want anything to do with people like that. Jesus talked about this in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 12. It says, he also told this parable To some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. And so I love Luke's gospel because in verse 9 he basically says, here's the parable Jesus is telling and this is who he's talking to. He's talking to the ones who, look at that, trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And when you trust that you are righteous on your own, you are automatically going to look down on everybody else. And, and Luke says, this is who he was talking to when he opens his mouth in verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. 
God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I give. God, look at me. I am so glad I'm not like those people. I'm so glad I don't struggle with this. I'm so glad I don't struggle with that. But it's not out of a, an attitude of grief and mourning and gratitude. It's, it's, it's from a heart of arrogance. Because we think that somehow our righteousness, any, some of it comes from us. Later on, if you skip down in verse 14, Jesus will tell them after that parable that those who approach their sin and the sin in others this way won't be justified before God. So do we mourn over the sin that we see in the world or do we scoff at it? Do we laugh at it? Do we make jokes about it? I'm so aware of my guilt before God when it comes to this. And I hope you are too. That there is sin in the world that we will joke about and make fun of and laugh at. But it's sending people to hell. But we think it's funny. The more appropriate heart is later on in Luke 19. That was in Luke 18. And then there's this picture of Jesus in Luke 19, beginning in verse 41. It says, as he approached and saw the city, the city of Jerusalem, as Jesus looked over it, what was his response? He wept for it, saying, if you knew this day, what would bring peace? But now it is hidden from your eyes. For the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone on another in your midst, because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. Jesus looks over the city of Jerusalem, and he grieves because of the sin that was there. Our town, Lindale, our region of Floyd County, our, our state, our country, our, our entire world is like Jerusalem. Waiting on a day of destruction while God is here Seeking to bring peace. Jesus said, if you only knew what would bring peace. But your eyes are closed. Your eyes are blind to it. And the blindness of the people to their sin and the consequences of their sin caused Jesus to grieve and cry. Folks, we're walking around. We're living in a community whose eyes are closed to the consequence that's coming in their life. And we know what will bring peace. 
and the heart of Jesus who knew what would bring peace in the lives of the people but saw them walking around blind, completely oblivious to it, 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 didn't, it didn't prompt a, a spirit of arrogance or pride or self-righteousness in him. It brought him to tears. So the proper response to sin by those in the kingdom of Jesus is mourning. But as backwards and upside down as the Beatitudes sound, there's a blessing here. So let's get to that part. That's only half. Blessed are those who mourn, what? For they will be comforted. Here's the blessing that comes with this beatitude. And you can write this down. Sin creates mourning like no other. But God's forgiveness brings comfort like no other. Aren't you glad that Jesus just didn't stop? He, he didn't just say, hey, you should mourn and stop and not give a promise of, of what, why can those who mourn over their sin experience happiness? That's what was so backwards about this beatitude. Jesus said those who mourn over their sin and mourn over the sin in the world, I promise comfort to them. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. John writes and says, If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. This verse 8 is the characteristic of, of that Pharisee spirit. The one who looks at someone else in their sin and says, Oh, God, thank, thank you, Jesus. I'm not like that person. I don't struggle with those things. I don't have that kind of sin in my life. The truth is you do. The spirit of that sin is, is in you. It may not be coming out the same way, but the same sin that curses them is the same sin that's in you. So this is the one who has no grief over their own sin or the sins of other people. And John says the truth is not in you, if that's your attitude. Verse 9, though. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the source of comfort. Jesus says the ones who mourn over their sin, they come in confession and come in repentance. The answer and the response from God will always be forgiveness. It will always be acceptance and comfort. I don't think anybody expressed the comfort that came from the knowledge of the forgiveness of their sins better than David in the Psalms. If we look over in Psalm 103, I want to show you some verses there that just express the comfort that Jesus is talking about. But this is Old Testament. This is David. But he's, he's expressing the kind of comfort that Jesus is talking about in the Beatitudes. Psalm 103 Verses 3 through 5 first says this. He forgives all our iniquity. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with faithful love and compassion. He satisfies you with good things. Your youth is renewed like the eagle. What did we say that blessed meant? Satisfied full, 
happy. David says in verse 5, he satisfies you with good things. This is the blessed life that Jesus is talking about. But look at all of those words just in those three verses of what God does. The, the actions that he, that he imparts to us. He forgives, he heals, he redeems, he crowns, and he satisfies, and he renews. Jesus says that, that is the comfort. That is where the comfort comes for those who mourn over their sin. And if we go on down in that same psalm and go down to verse 10. Look at what verse 10 says. It says, He has not dealt with us as our sins deserve or repaid us according to our iniquities. Praise God. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. <laughs> as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. This is what Jesus is talking about. Blessed are the ones who grieve and sorrow and mourn over the presence of sin in their life because that leads to repentance. And when it leads to repentance and coming to God, seeking forgiveness with that poorness of spirit, this is how God responds. Not in, not in harsh judgment, not in... Not, not as we would respond to people. Sometimes we want people to come to us seeking forgiveness and we want to see them grovel. We want to see them just over and over. I don't, I, I can't, do, I just, I, I want to hear you tell me how sorry you are over and over and over and over. And then maybe I'll forgive you. God, in the moment when he sees this brokenhearted mourning in us over our sin and we respond to him in that way, this is how he responds to us. And praise God, he has not dealt with me in my sin according to it. According to how it deserves to be dealt with. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, you remember last week I made the differentiation between the first beatitude who says the kingdom of heaven is theirs, which is present tense, and this is the first of the beatitudes we see with a, with a future. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So what does that future tense mean? Let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that the comfort from our mourning is something that we have to wait for in eternity. Obviously, because David in this psalm is writing about what God does in response to his sin and, and, it's, and it's present. So the future tense is not because we have to wait. It's not that God causes us to have to live in, in, the, in the messiness and the pain of our grief and our sin, and then says, well, I'll comfort you one day, but you have to wait for that. That's not what he's saying. He brings that comfort now, but what it does mean is that the mourning has to come before the comfort. 
that the only way we will experience this kind of comfort and this kind of acceptance and this kind of compassion from God is once we mourn over our sin, then we will be comforted. There's no comfort for those that have no mourning over their sin. When we come as mournful sinners, brokenhearted by the state of our lives, he forgives us and he pours his comfort on us in the present and in the future. I hope that you've experienced the present comfort that comes from a God who responds to your to your mourning over your sin, your repentant heart, your brokenheartedness over your own sin. But that future comfort, there's a promise for that too, and it's even greater than the comfort that we feel now. Revelation 21 verse 4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief Crying and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Those words in Revelation is, are not just talking about the fact that death, grief, and dying and pain will be no more because people will quit dying. Not that first kind of grief that we talked about. Death, grief, crying, and pain will be no more because sin will be no more. Because sin is the cause of all those things. Sin is what brings death. Sin is what brings grief and crying and pain and all of these negative things in our life. Sin is what brings those things. And he says all of that stuff is going to pass away because sin will be done away with. Can you imagine living in eternity? Can you just imagine what that's going to be like to live in a reality where there is no sin? There's no sin to break things there's no sin to 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 destroy what god has made everything will be made new because all of the previous things will be passed away the promised comfort that we have now in the present in that day will be fully complete he gives us comfort now and we experience it but there's an incompleteness to it until then and in that day it will be full and complete when the sin that has caused all of the mourning will finally be destroyed and we live in complete and perfect comfort in Jesus' presence. Can you think of anything that brings you more comfort than that? That's the promise. 